Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Well, hello and welcome to Cross Section, where we are having conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. It's actually rather strange and disconcerting today because I am live in a room with Alicia and Danny because we have been at the EA Council together, the Evangelical Alliance gathering of our council, about 50, 60 church and organisational leaders. So it's been an amazing time together, but it is quite surreal not to be looking at you both on screen. So welcome. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> so we're at Highly. It's live. It's fun. It's not live to you, but as in we're all live together and it's fun. So we're going to look at a couple of stories this week. To be honest, the biggest story is the Russell Brand story. That's the story we're going to dominate and look at most. But Danny, there has been an announcement just this week, in the middle of the week, from the Prime Minister. It was leaked, it was sort of trailed a little before about abandoning net zero. Well, the government have said that they are going to take a different route to achieving net zero by 2050. And the, the headline announcement was that the ban on the sale of petrol and diesel cars was being pushed back from 2030 to 2035. But alongside that, a raft of other measures being changed, including weakening the plan to phase our gas boilers from 2035 and changing grants around heat pumps and the accessibility to that. And there were also some comments about what the government said that they would not do about uh, forcing people to change their diets, forcing people to organise their waste into seven different types of bins. To be honest, and definitely on a couple of those last bits, things that hadn't really been serious political suggestions, but the government seeking to say that while they do want to still achieve net zero, uh, they want to change the way we do that. And unsurprisingly, there's been significant criticism of those changes. You say unsurprisingly. Is this a bit of a political move? Is that is that what the risk is, that this is playing politics? This is trying to win voters? Is that the suspicion? I think there's definitely a sense that uh, the Conservatives can win some votes by saying people aren't going to have to replace their cars in 2030. Obviously, actually, you'd still would have been able to buy secondhand cars at that point. Uh, it would only affect people looking to buy new cars after 2030. So it's a bit of one of those hypothetical things, but it definitely it will win them some support. It's it's how much that achieves. That's it. Any views on that zero and the abandoning thereof? I think I have a lot of learning to do around net zero. I think the principle of changing policy intact is standard uh, in terms of direction of travel. In many ways, I feel the opposition to this that is coming from business, coming from activists, coming from even potentially some parts of um, the Christian community that is very much about the need to make climate change uh, a focal part of what the church is speaking out on is upset that it seems like the government is playing politics with this but I think as Christians we need to look is net zero the right policy to achieve kind of mindfulness and I think I'm still open to that area of policy I before we came onto this I was like to tell me about net zero what is the policy direction what is its objectives does it achieve what it's desired to achieve and if the answer is no what's so wrong in changing tact and the direction and exploring that new opportunity, whereas I think there's a level of cynicism that it is about point scoring. And yeah, I have a lot, yeah, a lot of sympathy for that because I think I'm absolutely passionate about creation care. I don't want to see it, and I think that's a biblical mandate 
think that's a lot less toxic here in the UK than in the US. I was recently speaking there and I knew not to mention, but I almost, I basically joked in the room saying, I'm not going there because I know this divides the room very differently. And we have people like John Stott to thank for that, who were, I think, right on the front of that in terms of British evangelicalism and saying creation care is important. This is something we should be passionate about. It's biblical and it shouldn't be contentious. And it largely isn't here as an overall aim. So then the question for me, like you, is, is net zero the right way to get there? And that's a more kind of strategic question. And it feels like everybody agreed it was, so everybody made commitments. But they're not commitments that a lot that are, are going to be delivered almost in our generation or lifetime. They're, they're, they're putting out 10, 20, and 30 years. Some of these commitments are 20, 50. So you make the commitment now and then tie the next generation into actually dealing with it and paying for it. So I'm with the general agenda of absolutely caring for creation. Is this the right way to it? And that's the case about pretty much every policy issue, in that there can be an underlying principle that we want to support. And I think the challenge for us as Christians wanting to engage in politics is to say, well, here's the principle that we should care for our creation. Um, we should look after the world we are in. Well, what does that mean in policy terms? And there will be trade-offs and different views around that. The question is, is there something that can kind of sit in between where there is a consensus and say, actually, in order to care for our creation, we should agree that this is something we need to do, i.e. cut our carbon emissions to net zero so that we are protecting the planet. I think that's complicated. And then even more contested is, well, what measures are necessary in order to achieve that? And the challenge for Christians is not getting so far down a route that says one set of measures in pursuit of one particular intermediary aim that will serve a wider principle is the thing we should be supporting. But at the same time, it's not also throwing everything up in the air and saying we can't agree on anything. I think that is the constant challenge when we seek to engage in these questions. Yeah, because net zero, I mean, electric cars may well be a very helpful contribution, but actually where you get the electricity from becomes a very important factor behind that. And the move to net zero in the agricultural community could have a massive impact on farming. And the simplest way is just to reduce farming and then import things but i mean there's there's hugely simple so you set a goal we were talking about this and even in relation to our own strategic plan today set a goal and if you set particular measurables there are ways of getting there that aren't necessarily helpful so i think we're saying yeah so on this this is one where though we share a lot of the the kind of vision for people we, this is climate change and engaging around creation care and i do prefer that language as somewhere going hey absolutely we are with most people in culture in this moment it's not maybe one where we're jarring we're in a lot of other conversations we have in this podcast. The view that we articulate as Christians might be at odds with culture, but where the difference is, is about maybe the strategy and how we get there. And that feels like it should be a different level of conversation. Yes, and you're going to have legitimate disagreements among Christians on how to do that. And I think actually providing a space that says, here's the principle that we want to support. What are different ways of doing it? And we recognise that different Christians will take different routes on it. Remembering that things that we do, particularly in the West, the UK, but the West in general, will have a disproportionate impact in other parts of the world because of the way we do things. Lithium batteries are another example. That has electric cars here, which sounds good and reduces our carbon emissions, but has an impact in other parts of the world. But that lithium has to be mined. And the mining of that, by all accounts that I've read, is deeply problematic, often involving children and high levels of kind of poisonous materials. So you do one thing, have an impact elsewhere. Okay, so we haven't we haven't cracked that one, maybe. No, we're not we, going to solve that one. Now. We've we've got talking about it and thought about one of the political issues this week. We're going to spend the rest of our time, and I think the biggest story of the week and and the angles around this are significant. I think are, are around Russell Brand, 
I don't think we need to recap huge amounts of the story. If you haven't seen this story, you just clearly haven't been listening to the news this week. This was the story of the weekend. I first spotted on Twitter, people starting to say something's breaking, something's coming. And there was this kind of tease almost going on. You're like, what is this? The Times and Channel 4 had something. When did you guys even... Well, I, I think I clocked. Go. I think I clocked it on. I think it was the Saturday. I think it was when the Times published it. I don't think I'd seen it before that. But Russell Brand had responded preemptively to it by putting a video on his YouTube channel the night before, and then yes, on Saturday afternoon, the Times uh, published allegations. That evening, I think, was the Dispatches program on Channel Four with the. Well, we'll get into this very interesting title: "Hidden in Plain Sight." exploring both his predatory behaviour, but also some of the particular uh, criminal allegations that were being made against him. So I actually haven't, unusually for me, I'll confess, tweeted about this, because every time I went to do it, I thought, it's it's a learning curve, look at that. Because every time I thought of it, I thought, this is an important cultural story. I think it's appropriate potentially to comment, but it's complex, it's nuanced. And every time I read something else, I thought, oh, there's another angle, it's another approach. I need to think about exactly how and why I would want to engage in this moment. Well, so instead of tweeting, where I got that. Well, I subtweeted about it. I didn't actually mention it, but I did tweet that it was is that it is possible to support three things. Crime should be investigated by the police and prosecuted through the courts. Secondly, innocent until proven guilty is a cornerstone of our judicial system. And thirdly, that investigative journalism plays a vital role in uncovering what would remain hidden. That was the sum total of my social media. I think what's fascinating about the story is I similarly engaged with it on X. I'm sorry. Um, The stories that were leaking, but it took me, Russell Brand today and his whole YouTube persona today is not how I grew up in Russell Brand. So instantly when the story broke, I was going back to in my 20s when he was on kind of BBC radio when he was on Big Brother and being a younger woman hearing a man be so verbose, so vulgar, so and it was his comedy sketch, it was his entertainment, and how it was the title Hidden in Plain Sight applauded by the culture. He he got more platforms as a result, more robust and vulgar that he became. So I think my initial reaction to the story is 20-year-old Alicia being engaged, what was a very sexually active culture, me starting out in faith or being recommitted to Christ in that and taking purity seriously, and then being mindful that actually the culture of the time celebrated and applauded a man that was quite harmful to my womanhood, my personhood. It would celebrate. So I think that's I think that's the journey of where I where I start. Yeah, and and I think trouble because the engagement wasn't that you know, when I was pausing about whether to engage, it wasn't, I didn't think it anything, none of us had anything to say or for me. I thought, so Brand's behaviour is reprehensible. It was clear to me years ago. I mean, the, the standout moment was the Andrew Sachs granddaughter yeah. and how he engaged around that. But he was very clear and very obvious and talked in very open and vulgar terms about his sexual exploits and on a Christian sexual ethic. Every part of that was problematic and wrong and sinful behaviour, things that we're kind of maybe reluctant to say, but that's fundamentally it. So in one sense, it was easy to say, this guy is out of line. He's problematic in what he has done. If you don't have that frame 
and he was, as you say, lauded and celebrated at the time for the way he was engaging, then one of the stories about him is around the 16-year-old. And the problem there is that it's almost like the sending of the BBC car has to now be the hook because fundamentally, legally, he didn't do anything wrong in that one. Now, there's other stories about consent and we're coming to that maybe in a minute, so I'm not saying that's the only one. But that was the first one. And it's a bit like Philip Schofield. He ends up really being sacked and getting the kind of thing he trips up on is lying to ITV rather than his conduct. People felt like culture at large didn't like what he was doing, but he didn't do anything illegal. Hugh Edwards didn't do anything illegal. You know, so many of these people didn't do anything illegal. So you find these bizarre sending a BBC car lying to your employers is the problem because the sexual ethic involved isn't problematic unless it trips the one remaining barrier that we have which is consent and this there's something really odd going on about sexual morality in this space and it's not straightforward and it's not clear-cut so at one point it does trip over a line when there are criminal allegations whether that's a rape or sexual assault and i think that's why i said that in my tweet i think it is important that the judicial system is able to take its course in those matters but i also think that that doesn't mean we can't comment on kind of other predatory sexual behavior that may not be criminal, but is distasteful, unkind, even the language. And to be honest, it's pretty hard to uh, quote or comment from any of his stand-up shows just because of the level of his vulgarity. Mm. But he wasn't hiding the fact that, uh, well, he would describe himself as a sex addict. He made numerous mentions to his interests and predilections and that's why the hidden in plain sight is such a powerful title in that no one pretended that he wasn't quite a vulgar character in this regard and yet he was he was in some places tolerated in other places applauded for that and it's yet now he's kind of tripped a switch is it the criminality? Is it the fact that we look back and think all these things are stacking up? The Andrew Sachs granddaughter, his stand-up shows, his comments to other people, comments that other people have made that were somewhat cryptic over the last few years. He may have known more about it, but didn't quite say it out loud. Do you now look and say, oh, wow, what did we miss? Or was it there all along and we just chose not to say it? I think something that you just said there's loads of C's that we've been talking about consent, which we're going to come to criminality. But I think something that is a, a bigger C that the culture at the time is now trying to rewrite histories around character, that he himself at the time, allegations aside, was a drug addict, openly a drug addict, would openly be somewhat on shows looking slightly worse for wear from a, a party the night before. And yet the industry the entertainment industry didn't think actually should we be more concerned that he as a person is prepared to come to work intoxicated under the influence and then on top of that prepared to speak about women and people through banter but actually degrade them dehumanize them and that's the part for which the culture doesn't really explore deeply that biblically we're always taught about that God looks at the heart of people. He doesn't, he, he is more concerned about our character rather than our presentation or our charisma or whether we're funny or whether we can lead a group. 
or or whatever it is he instantly in that moment as christian we would look upon that and be like there's something flawed and yet culture of the day seemed to ignore the character side that was glaringly obvious and provide more spaces and more opportunities for his own career to flourish whilst his personal life is quite dysfunctional i i agree and i like i read a number of things were provoking i mean one was why are some people prepared to speak on this when they were prepared to speak on Mike Pilibachi, who we addressed last week, and I reflected for myself. So I didn't actually speak on either. We're, we're talking about it both on the podcast. And one was, so what brand has already admitted to date is enough for me to say he acted sinfully. And I am going to use that word. I kind of thought about whether that was the right word to use, but it is. So I'm happy to say that, in a sense, because he's already acknowledged that. So in the other situation, it was denied, and then an investigation was run. And then in, like, in light of those conclusions we're not able to say something. But those conclusions are in the balance of probabilities. So we've also got two tests that are at play. It's the lawyer and me thinking about it because the criminal test is beyond reasonable doubt. It's an incredibly high bar. And we know that very few rape cases succeed. Well, and that's unlikely to happen in these cases because of the date and yeah. the timing involved. And like, I have served on a jury. Yeah. And, well, it's public record that it was a mistrial. And having had heard the judge's direction that you have to be sure and i cannot comment on what went on in the jury's deliberation room it's good because i was about to tell you not to <laughs> yeah i'm aware that i i cannot do that but that question of what does it mean to be sure comes up time and time again whereas in most investigations you're much more what we call a civil threshold the balance of probabilities then you're saying is it kind of more likely than not the over the 50% rather than 99.9% in a criminal trial. And that's the gray space where I think many of the public are and something like this are saying, well, it feels like it because we've had a series of stories. But then Kevin Spacey had a series of stories and then was acquitted, but acquitted on a criminal trial where the bar is very high again. And so we often have this gray space and you're trying to do the balance, as you were saying in your tweet, Danny, where people are saying something like, I believe, or there's enough evidence or or there's a, there's a cumulative nature to the evidence. And at the same time, where is the presumption of innocence in this? And actually it becomes quite tricky in the public space. Well, I did see a very, very amusing tweet today. So you may have seen that Daniel Calif, the person who escaped from Wandsworth Prison recently, he has pleaded not guilty to escaping from prison. And someone, someone tweeted in response to that. Remember everyone, innocent until proven guilty. You didn't actually see him escape, did you? Why should you, we believe those prison guards? I'm sure they have vested interests and maybe are being paid by mainstream media. Why do they accuse him now? I'm just asking questions. Now, he is innocent until proven guilty. In the sight of the law. There is, there is a ridiculousness about this particular situation that he did escape from prison. I don't know how he's going to make the case. say that, based on what? So... Someone can be innocent until proven guilty in the eyes of the law, and he will have a, a trial, and that will be considered. But that doesn't mean you can't form an opinion about that outside of questions of law. And I think with someone like Russell Brand, there are criminal charges that should hopefully be brought, and there will be a process. But we can also look and comment on his wider behaviour and what we can learn from that. And more people are coming forward, but based on the stories I've read to date, it would appear that prosec successful prosecutions look unlikely, 
given the time gap, given some of the actions that were taking time, even the people who went, there's one lady who went to the rape crisis center. I mean, that's in a different jurisdiction. So we've got that. There are some questions as to how those are likely to actually be prosecuted or gone through. And I know the police have put uh, the, the kind of sample squad, I think the papers call it, it's not maybe the most helpful phrase, but they put a squad in place to look at these and, and to explore and investigate. But these convictions are hard at the best of times, and that's a, another conversation. But with this time gap, it becomes more and more difficult and is any trial prejudiced by the ongoing discussion. So normally we wouldn't comment or get into too much detail in a case like this, but this has become so public and such a piece of engagement. So I'd love in a moment we're going to come back maybe to those questions of consent, conspiracy theory, some of the other pieces around it. We'll take the last five minutes on that. We are on the cross-section podcast. This is brought to you by the Evangelical Alliance. As I said at the start, we actually have just been at our council. And one of the things we've been looking at is our own strategy and remind ourselves we are absolutely a membership organization. We're here to serve our members. If you are loving cross-sections, two things we'd love you to do is to share it, spread the word, tell people about it. Three things, actually. Two, get in touch with us if there's anything you think we should be discussing or you have any comments or engagement. You can do that on social media. You can do that by email. But thirdly, if you love it and would love to support what we're doing, you can become a member of the Evangelical Alliance from three pounds a month, the price of a cup of coffee. You get to add your voice to evangelicals across the UK, and particularly for the three of us gathered on this podcast, the voice piece in the Corridor of Powers is incredibly important and effective where we can say we're actually not just coming up with these ideas, we are representing the evangelical constituency right throughout the UK. So with that small uh, advertising break finished, <laughs> on this, there are lots of angles, but I think the consent piece I find fascinating and also the kind of almost conspiracy-like theories. You mentioned this, uh, Danny Brand's preemptive strike. They're targeting me. They, I think he used the they were are coming to get me. I mean, he said a little bit more about mainstream media, but his suggestion was because he's been attacking mainstream media on issues, they're coming to take him down. And he, this is all really fascinating because Russell Brand was very much uh, a darling of the left-wing media in his kind of first phase of his life he had a guardian column and then there was somewhat of a reinvention in more recent years and he is now very much on the not necessarily the right it's not quite right to use left and right in that sense but in that slightly populist anti-elite part of kind of in particularly internet culture that does thrive on we're telling you the truth, they're all trying to hide it from you. So whether that's about COVID vaccines, whether it's about central banks and money to cashless societies, uh, 15 minute cities is another thing that I don't really understand, but you hear cited in some of these conversations. So it does feed into these collection of topics that we're the ones telling you the truth. They're all just trying to control you and therefore you should ignore everything that they say. So when these stories do come from the mainstream media, from Channel 4, from the Times and the Sunday Times, he's able to say, don't trust a word that they say, I'm the one speaking truth to power. And there's a toxic tribalism has gone. I mean, I have been surprised, I think we all, how people have divided very quickly into camps around Russell Brand. It's either I believe the woman or innocent until proven guilty as if these are two extremes and people have adopted quite robustly these positions it seems to me they're adopting like almost policy positions and having skirmishes and online battles around them more than they would about some theological issues would be a more respectful engagement and these, these can genuinely divide churches and communities at the moment it feels like sure can i think my issue with 
initial response, and it's under investigation, he says that he, he's, he's bound by what he can say. But the fact that his starting point is to attack they, the elite, I, I need to defend myself against them, ruining my name, calling into question historical legacy pieces. I feel it's his attempt to control the narrative, to control, to de defend himself in some ways. And then on the flip side of that, what he then did say that was addressing the main allegations of sexual assault is that they, all of my relationships were consensual. So I'm not really going to engage with the allegations against me at this moment in time because I can't, but I'm going to defend myself in terms of the media coming after me. And I don't even know if he could say they're making false allegations because they've got people involved who engaged who are prepared to share their stories. So I just find his defence as a female really irritating and somewhat, as I say, not dismissive, but in somewhat the issue isn't Sunday Times, Channel 4 dispatches, it's you are being accused of being an individual that's predatory towards women, uh, abusive in, in, in using your power, manipulative and assault and rape. And how do you, he could have engaged with that, I think, a little bit differently, but he chose not to. And I think that's a part of me that's slightly frustrated. But well, that does go to the one thing, isn't it? If you can say, if you say it's consensual, then nothing else is illegal. None of the rest of the allegations stand. You can be essentially predatory. You can be vulgar in how you talk about it. You can be sleazy, whatever else. But none of those things are ultimately illegal in our culture. The only line that he that, that will cause him a long-term problem, obviously, and rightly, just for clarity, to be obviously, is the consent line. Yeah. And I mean, those alleg the allegations are clear that he did do those things without consent. They're sexual assault and they're rape. They are serious allegations. But that suppose that's why he says that one thing. And and he has he has denied the allegations and that the criminality is an important thing. We've talked already about the challenges that a prosecution may face. But and Peter, you talked about sin earlier. But I don't think you should need to be a Christian and have a Christian understanding of sin to be able to say something that is is wrong without it being criminal. And I think that's what we sometimes lose is something being wrong, something being inappropriate and Actually, you shouldn't do that. Doesn't mean it's illegal necessarily. And he may have committed illegal acts. He may not have. But I think we should have been able to say, as a society, not just as Christians with a particular Christian view of sexual ethics, that his behaviour and his attitude towards women was wrong. It's one of the things that always frustrated me about politicians having affairs. I think it was Ken Livingstone was one of the first. Said that's a private matter. That's up to me. And I was like, well, no, because if you lie to your spouse then how can I trust what you're going to say to anybody else? And an affair by a politician is not a private matter. It, as The consequence of what they do with it is up to them, but it's not private in, in the sense that you have broken the vows and promises that you made. Don't enter the marriage then. Say, I'm going to have an open relationship, do whatever. But if you go that way, then you break that covenant. And that, that is a public matter. So I agree with you. You know, and that should be something we can all agree upon like the, the collective standards should be higher. And it feels like, interestingly, our culture is shifting a bit on that from being very much fine, it felt like, with promiscuity 10 years ago and very public about it, like Brian, to say, actually, even that's now a bit problematic, even if he didn't do these other things. We're not as happy about that. There's a bit of an edge around just how he was doing it. But I think for me, the other part of that is the kind of conspiracy theory bit, where we go into the post-truth world. So Brian's big on conspiracy conspiracy theories. He had disappeared off my radar, but it turns out he's got six million or something followers on his channels. 
he was making their now estimate like a million pounds a year off this kind of like it was a massive but he, I didn't see him. So everybody's got their people they follow and the people that I read, you don't necessarily read or follow and vice versa. But in that post-truth world where we're deconstructing truth, you can then say, well, you have your truth, I have mine. This is all conspiracy. This is all people coming to get me. And we've created a place where there is no objective truth, except now when we come to something like a court and investigations, trying to find objective truth. Because if we want justice, we have to find the objective truth, not Brown's opinion against somebody else's opinion. But as a culture, we are losing the ability to do that. And that's my main gripe about that whole movement to deconstruct and postmodernism and post-truth is that somebody's passionate about justice. How do you get justice when everybody has their personal version of the truth? And you turn up in the court and that doesn't work because we have to find an objective version of the facts that happen and make a judgment based on that. And that's becoming harder and harder. And, and this poses interrelated questions that we talked about last week around South Survivor and Mike Pulavacci in that people want an independent inquiry. They want a KC to investigate it because they consider that that will provide sufficient independence and scrutiny to be able to say, this is what happened and this is what didn't happen, because we then need something like that to be able to determine the truth. And I, I think that, that investigation is crucially important. But time and time again, we say, we need a public inquiry into something. We need a judge-led inquiry we have this idea of, oh, that will help us to actually be able to establish what went on and what didn't go on, and that will answer all our questions. Similarly, people want, oh, it has to be a criminal prosecution to be able to say anything definitive about Russell Brand. Now, I suspect the the lawyers at the Times and Channel 4 asked some very searching questions before they agreed to the publication of it, um, because they will be wary of being sued. So it doesn't mean he's been proved guilty, but it does mean that significant work's gone into establishing what went on. Yeah, it's back to how do we, it's a bit about how we sift our news sources. This isn't just somebody on Twitter who's heard a story and is repeating it. This has been investigated by the Times and by Channel 4 and the likelihood of their lawyers not wanting to be sued raises the bar. But it's not an independent investigation that I think would be the next stage up. And it's certainly not a criminal investigation, which is the highest kind of threshold that we have. But it does sit somewhere in between. We're seeing a repeated pattern in the nature of those stories. So that raises the kind of credibility for me. But I still don't know any of the parties involved and they're not an independent body doing a full investigation. So you're left in an uneasy position where there's pretty substantial stuff said. But we're, I, I still feel slightly unclear as to what to include, except that what he's already admitted himself takes him well over my own threshold and what I understand to be a Christian threshold for what's going on. So he's, he's clearly badly behaved from that point of view. We need to bring this into land in a moment. And uh, I always look to Alyssa in these moments, see if she's got something profound to say just before we land the whole conversation. Not profound. I have another question. So maybe this might be one for the, the viewers to think about and then email us in in terms of between where we are today with the news story and a possible criminal investigation. What does the culture say in between that gap? They're happy to say, justice has been served or we've done the right thing what, what's the resolution that the culture is looking for in between story being released and the criminal investigation what's happening in between does he need to cancel does he need to be removed does he need i don't know i don't know how the, the culture judges that well and should youtube have demonetized his yeah. youtube accounts for what he has said he has not been convicted of anything he has said he has said things that people do not like, and with, I would say with good reason. 
do not like. But is it right that he has been demonetized? What about other people who say things that other people do not like? All of those questions. And then I don't I don't remember everything about the Kevin Spacey case, but there was a lot of things said at the time. There was a general sense, I thought, that he was presumed to be guilty. And then when the trial came, he was ultimately acquitted. But acquittal is not the same as innocence, as we know. It means the evidence did not meet the threshold to find him guilty. You are acquitted, but that doesn't mean that nothing happened. It meant that the prosecution can't prove that it happened. And it does feel like to you, but then we're, we're living in a bit of a gap about that. So how do we respond wisely to what's going on in what is ultimately, I think, a very destabilizing period that we live in, this kind of crisis period? These stories come out, everybody feels compelled. And actually, in this moment, maybe there is a slowing down before we jump on social media and begin to reflect, hold on, what are the substantial questions? What is true? What has gone on in terms of a sex ethic here? Where are the conspiracy theorists and like how do those views sometimes play in? Um, and, and as you say, Danny, it's actually possible to hold quite a, a range of views around this issue and to do that well and articulate it. So in one sense, it feels inconclusive. And that's OK, I think, for us to say that but also to kind of acknowledge some of the, the threads and the strands that have been going on. Um, as always in cross-section, we're trying to find the intersection of faith and news and culture. This was the big story of the week. We absolutely felt we had to wrestle with it, um, even though there's arguably more to be said, and it's quite possible we'll return to it again. But thanks for joining us and being with us in the conversation. It's been great to be in person with Danny and Alicia. And uh, somebody, who knows who, will be back again next week. It might even be the three of us. I don't know. And who knows what we'll be discussing and what will be in the news. Bless you in your week ahead as you try and navigate the cultural currents. Goodbye. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.